Hey, what is going on everyone? It's me, Mr. Mario, and welcome back to another episode of Mod Chat. This is a at minimum monthly podcast that I like to do here on the Mr. Mario 2011 channel, as well as pretty much any place where you can consume podcasts in which I kind of talk about some of the more recent developments that I find interesting in the modding world and bring them to you all and kind of summarize it a little bit in a way. Now, I did say podcast, so if you are interested in a visual version of this, it's available on my channel, Mr. Mario 2011, that's on YouTube. And if you're interested in a audio-only version of it, fire up your favorite podcasting platform or way you consume podcasts and look up Mod Chat, it should hopefully be right there. Now, I do want to say yet again, I know this is a temporary change right now. I'm not having my camera hooked up at the moment, but I am using some gameplay. And I know some people like it, some people don't like it, and a lot of people just didn't really care either way how I presented this. So what I'm going to do is there was one tip that I did see in which they were recommending, hey, maybe you should use some just chill gameplay when you are showing, kind of just talking like this. So, if you are interested in that, I am going to be showing some Final Fantasy XV gameplay here, as recorded on my PS4 Pro. For anybody who doesn't like gameplay, I promise you it is a temporary change right now. I will be going back to the video here shortly, and I guess camera view. But aside from that, you know what, it's mostly going to be what we're going to be covering here in terms of new topics, so gameplay is kind of going to be interspersed in between. But let's go ahead and take a look at our first topic for this episode. Our first topic that I found pretty interesting over from Polygon is Modder Patches Bloodborne to run at a buttery 60 frames per second on PS4. Now for anybody who does not know, Bloodborne is a PlayStation 4 exclusive and it is a Souls type game. It's from the same company from Software and it is uh, one of the best exclusives from what I know on the PS4. I kind of have to take that at face value because it's just these aren't my types of games. I like to play to have fun and relax. Don't really want to get super frustrated, but either way, it has definitely looked really interesting and I've seen enough gameplay of this here. But getting into the article, it states, Bloodborne is a great game and fans are still returning to try and unravel the inner workings of the 2016 action RPG. One modder, Lance McDonald, says he has patched Bloodborne to make the game run at 60 frames per second on PlayStation 4. McDonald is well known in gaming communities for taking apart games to find their secrets. Previously, he had uncovered some spooky setups and cut content from the horror classic P.T., and unearthed hidden bosses from Bloodborne and Dark Souls 3. On Tuesday, he made a series of tweets documenting his progress on a Bloodborne patch that boosted the frame rate. As he explains, I patched Bloodborne to run at 60 frames per second. It works alright, about as good as the Dark Souls 3 PS4 Pro patch does, except for the fact that the game doesn't have proper timing and the entire game basically runs in fast forward. This is running on a base PS4. McDonald also posted footage on a PlayStation 4 Pro, noting that there's a lot of screen tearing in this particular test footage because of no V-Sync. Performance is further improved with the PS4 Pro's boost mode enabled, McDonald says. And yeah, that's about it on here. I know over on Digital Foundry, he actually ended up teaming up with John Linneman and did a bit of a, I guess, kind of explanation and in-depth analysis of 60 frames per second Bloodborne. 
So what Lance did is he was collaborating, he ended up recording a lot of gameplay, he sent it over to Digital Foundry, him and John end up talking about this for 30 minutes. It's a really great video just going into, you know, all the in-depth stuff and things that Lance had done. I actually came across Lance when he was modding PT, and he uncovered some really cool stuff and made my favorite video of his that I've seen is the one where he actually exits out of bounds on that game PT and is able to check out, I mean, just an entire map that was never, ever seen. And it was great and stunning and sad at the same time just seeing what could have been. But either way, we're talking about Bloodborne here. This is, you know, it's not really locked at 60 frames per second necessarily, but most of the time it's running there, it's getting pretty close, and the point is it's unlocked. And I think even it's explained in this video, if they bring the resolution down to 720p, I guess internally, it can run at 60 frames per second with no issue. I, well, I guess with an asterisk, I should explain that there. You see, there are some issues because this game has just been so hard-coded to run at 30 frames per second. Even then, apparently, the frame pacing was not really the best. So because of that, there's stuff that's kind of broken. I guess the thing that I can compare it to that I was thinking of is take the original Halo Combat Evolved on PC. The game was designed to run at 30 frames per second, 30 hertz in mind. I, I guess 30 frames per second for this. If you try and boost the frame rate, so play at a higher frame rate, like 60 frames, or just try and unlock it, the game is playable, but so many of the animations are broken and just look really jagged and weird, and the game just doesn't look nice or play very fluid-like, unfortunately, because you're taking a game that was designed and coded and written to run at 30 frames per second, and every single little aspect of it was, including the animations, and then you're boosting it. So the game runs at 60, like in Halo's case, but all the animations are still tied to 30. And from what I see, that's kind of the case here. I am going to link these down below in the description, both the Polygon article as well as the excellent Digital Foundry article. But the reason why I talked about this is because this is really cool, and I'm hoping that we can see a lot more stuff like this. Like, I just want to see some more homebrew-based, you know, performance patches and things that we can see. I know I did see that on the 3DS at one point for the new 3DS, where there were modified update files you could download and apply to your games, so that way that game would take full advantage of the new 3DS's CPU power and such. And it'd be really cool if the modding community and other people such as Lance are able to do that and create and issue patches for games that really improve the performance on them. I would absolutely love to see more of this. Now I have one other topic to talk about on the PS4, but this is a pretty heavy topic here. Heavy in a good way. The long-awaited Mira project from the Open Orbis team has finally officially released. As you can see, we're going to kind of just go through the GitHub page here, and I want to do some explanation on this, and I did have some additional explanation from Kiwi, friend of the show, and one of the main developers on here, Kiwi Dog. Just reading the readme on here, the Mirror Project is a set of tools that grants you more power and control over your jailbroken PS4. It is the result of all the hard work by the Open Orbis team. It works differently to the custom firmware experience on PlayStation 3, where custom firmware would be installed on the system via modified PUP files, example rebug. However, once the framework is installed and ran, it gives users the same functionality they were previously used to. So right now at the moment we can see the build status and these statuses, it looks like it's being built out for firmwares 4.05, 4.55, 4.74, 5.01, and of course 
5.05. Now the features we're looking at here are a homebrew enabler, emulated registry, emulated NVS, kernel debugger, remote GDB, system level fuse implementation, this is experimental and a work in progress, also loading SPRX modules, plus IAT, plus function hooking, thanks to Theory Wrong for that. It's also mentioned that you can also mount and decrypt local game saves, thanks to ChindoChap for that, that's a work in progress. Transfer files to and from the hard drive, implement your own kernel plugins, RPC using protobuf, Implement your own userland trainers with hooks included. Dump your hard drive decryption keys, or encryption keys, excuse me, and a bunch of other stuff. And of course, there are so, 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 so many contributors here, so I'm kind of just going to go slowly on this list, and I guess you can see if you are looking at the visual of this on here. Now, unfortunately, right now as I'm recording this, I know I'm recording this the day it actually released, which is on the 11th, and this video or podcast will go out on the 13th. Unfortunately, this is all from source, so for anybody who is just going out right now and expecting to find a big downloadable file that is just ready to go, pre-compiled, no, you are going to have to compile this yourself, and it is all mentioned right here for the installation and all that fun stuff. However, one nice thing that I was noticing, if we come down here a little bit further, we could take a look at some of the plugins on here. So for example, it's mentioned Mira provides a plugin framework that can run in kernel mode. Userland is soon, thanks to TW, I believe that's theory wrong. It provides a stable framework for startup, shutdown, suspend, resume in order to ensure clean operation of Mira. So it just mentions everything here, like the plugins that it comes with, I guess, are the debugger, emulated registry, fake package, fake self, file manager, work in progress fuse, a log server, work in progress overlay file system, I would assume there, overlay FS, and that's Orbis AFR, as well as a work in progress substitute. Now the cool thing is here, they're also trying to implement some future proofing in this framework as well. So it even says here in the firmware porting guide, let's say you are an eager developer, even a newbie that wants to try and contribute in some way or form to porting to a firmware that is not under active support. Here's the steps you would need to accomplish new builds from scratch. We will start by adding a non-existent firmware and work our way from that. It's also noted that this assumes you have a kernel dump for your firmware and things already labeled. If you need help with this step, you can ask in the help channel on the Discord, but you're pretty much on your own. And there is complete instructions here on if you satisfy those how you can port this over easily to a higher firmware. So that's really cool because the idea is here that they're going to really build out the Mira framework, build out everything as best they can, and then that way you can kind of just, you know, move your shop over from one firmware to another, which kind of echoes what I have heard said before. I believe it was Spectre Dev who was the one who stated at one point in one of his streams that right now they're really not looking for a kernel exploit, a newer one, nor do they really need one. We have 5.05, the current developers who are working on stuff like this are fine with 5.05, and their goal is to make 5.05 a super kick-ass firmware, have everything they need on there, everything working perfectly on 5.05, and then once they have a extremely excellent solid foundation there, at that point a higher kernel exploit can come out and things can be ported over. But we don't really want to port over 
just, you know, a scene and a platform and a framework that is unstable. Now, finally, for some to-dos here that are not yet implemented, the to-dos are clean kernel rebooting support, web browser activation, fake online, so spoofing for LAN usage, game dumping and decryption, fake DEX support, a Linux loader, embedded builds into the loader, as well as remote registry. Now, I do want to clarify a few things on this as well. This is not a custom firmware by any means by what we are imagining. So this is kind of myself talking here, and if there's any other input, I will mention that. So typically when people think of a custom firmware, they're going to think of custom files or like a repacked firmware. So on the PS3, you have your regular firmware files and then custom firmware files are regular firmware files that have been, you know, tweaked, heavily modified, repacked, all that fun stuff. And you take that modified firmware file and install it onto your system. There's now systems that really don't have to do that at this point. In short, what I'm saying here is this is not installable in the traditional sense that we would think of. I guess I'll drop a meme in here for this as well, too, when I was explaining it. Alright, Lily? This is not an installable pup. Stay still! It's not an installable pup! Good god! <laughs> Now, I did speak with Kiwi Dog on this just to get some further insight here, and from what he told me, he said it's not installable and isn't ready quite yet for normal users. There will be a stable branch coming in the next few weeks, which will have CI releases and also Al Azif's DNS. will have the latest builds for public use, which have been bug tested. And I did have to look up CI, by the way. That is continuous integration for anyone that didn't know, such as myself. Now, I did just straight up ask on here, would it be fair to compare it to like we see on the PlayStation Vita? So in case you do not know, on a PlayStation Vita, let's make this simple, you have firmware 3.6, you have a completely stock firmware, and then you install something on there called Hinkaku. That is your homebrew enabler, and Hinkaku contains a framework in there. Hinkaku itself is a framework, so to speak. It is a framework that when you run it, on a stock system. So you have your stock system, and when you run Hinkaku, it modifies the original stock firmware on the system to allow you to run Homebrew and do all the extra stuff you want, much like we have on the PS4 right now with Homebrew Enabler. You can't do any of the fun modding stuff you want to until you run that, and it is in memory. So when you restart your console and start fresh, your console is technically no longer modded at that point. Even if there's some quote-unquote installed files there, you still have to execute this payload and such in order to get to that modified point again. However, on the PlayStation Vita, it does contain Tihin, which that is a plug-in engine. And the way you're able to get all your bonus stuff, for example, using an SD to Vita to expand out your storage, using no NPDRM, adding TLS 1.2 support onto the system, those are all accomplished due to plugins, and that is a part of the Taihin engine, which is a part of the Hinkaku framework, and that would be really comparable on here with what we're looking at at the Mira project. So I wanted to really explain that in depth here because I've seen people who've been going crazy and saying, oh, it's a custom firmware, it's super custom, all this other stuff. And I mean, it has the potential to do all that. But first of all, it is not a custom firmware by what we think of in a traditional sense. It's going to be a framework 
that we're looking at here. And that framework is going to have plugin support that are going to allow us to really kind of salt and pepper the system with what we're wanting it to do. All right, that was quite a lot there, but I guess to finish it off, I want to give a huge shout out, thank you, and congratulations to the Open Orbis team for finally releasing the Mira project in some kind of usable capacity right here. Um, just, you know, getting it out to the public and, you know, letting people now play around with it further. I know there's going to be a lot more support on here, but it's really cool seeing this huge public release of, you know, at minimum, the source code here. Now, next up, this was linked to me, and I wanted to cover this here, but this is from, oh God, I hope I say this right, either Chimeric or Chimeric Systems. I believe it's Chimeric. I, I hope that's it. Now, Chimeric Systems had ended up tweeting something that looked pretty cool here, and he had said he tagged Voltar as well as RetroRGB, and he said had a conversation back in December about being tired of knowledge being lost, and it gave me the kick in the ass I needed to push through and finally finish this thing. Still a lot of testing to do, but the first boards came in today. And we have this board here, and, and what the hell is this? Well, apparently here, this is for the original Xbox, and this is a board that I don't know the exact name of it. But the point is, this is the board that would be required as a part of the process to upgrade the CPU on the original Xbox. You see, the CPU on the original Xbox could be upgraded, and there's several people who do upgrades, and there's several upgraded Xboxes out there, but some of that information has been lost time, and a lot of that information is unfortunately just kind of safeguarded and paywalled. And by that, I mean you can pay people to send your console to them and do a CPU upgrade. You can purchase CPU-upgraded original Xboxes from people, but you can't openly find this knowledge. So a lot of this had to be reverse-engineered, you know, last year and now 2020. And now we're actually seeing some really big progress on this. Like, we are seeing this really come to fruition. It's really awesome to see. And I was kind of waiting to hold off on covering some stuff like this too preemptively, but this just this little thing is really awesome to see. In short, if you still don't really know what I'm kind of rambling and talking about here, uh, hopefully this would be open source CPU upgrades for the original Xbox. And why is that exciting? Well, you'll be able to boost the speed of your original Xbox's CPU. Now, this isn't going to be for the every man to do, unfortunately. Like, it's not going to be as easy as a TSOP flash or even a mod chip install or anything else. This is going to require some know-how. It's going to require specialized hardware, all that fun stuff. But the point is, the methods would be out in the open, which makes me happy to see. Now I'm going to link his coffee here in which you'll be able to donate to him directly and help fuel the further research behind this. And here, actually this is the goal. It says fund the recreation of the 1.4 gigahertz interposer board. That's what it's called. And he states here, I have gotten my hands on a trusty 1.4 gigahertz interposer and am in the process of reproducing it. I already have a schematic and partially routed, but the design is going to take a significant amount of work and I am looking into getting it professionally delayered and de-scanned. So in short, it's really cool seeing further progress on this, and if you want to see even more progress made here, I would recommend donating to him directly. You can donate for as little as $3. Oh boy, Nintendo leaks. <laughs> I debated if I was even going to talk about this, but you know what? I'm going to be talking about it here. Now, I have to be kind of careful about what I'm going to show, so there's not going to be all too much interesting stuff on screen because I have to be a little bit careful here. 
but there's going to be a few threads I'm going to be looking at in regards to the recent Nintendo leaks that happened. So first of all, from Video Games Chronicle, it states here, Nintendo has reportedly suffered a significant legacy console leak. Source code, development documents, and more said to have been leaked online. Now, according to various sources archived on Reset Era and Reddit, over two terabytes of data was allegedly leaked onto the anonymous form 4chan over the weekend, including the original source code for Nintendo 64, GameCube, and Wii. The leaks also reportedly contained internal documentation related to GameCube, Nintendo DS, Nintendo 64, the 64DD, Wii, and the China-only IQ, showing how these systems work and the development processes behind them. Apparently, some test software for the N64, including the Mare House Cornflakes demo featured were also included in the leaked data, which I hadn't even heard of this until this point. Now, it's said here that the console leak is said to include the N64 GameCube and Wii console source code, like the whole damn consoles, right? <laughs> Diagrams and data sheets for every system component, documents describing feature planning and implementation, the full Wii operating system software development kit, planning docs for implementation of the Wii from 2004 to 2006, as well as Space World 1999 demos. Now, according to this, the data is said to originate from a server hack related to BroadOn, a company Nintendo had contracted to develop Wii hardware and software. And looking at the original Reset Era post in regards to this, it's called The Nintendo Leak Saga Continues, Biggest Nintendo Leak in History, Full so Source Code, Design Files for Wii Released Online. And I'm going to read a little bit more here, and this kind of just goes into what's going on. It states, as you are aware, in the last few weeks in 4chan, multiple Nintendo-related old things have been leaking, starting with the old Pokemon debug ROMs and source code. Yeah, I, I believe it was like Gen 1 and Gen 2 had leaked out. More on that here. Then, most recent, 3DS debug ROMs. I didn't know about that, actually. Uh, then keys for all consoles, up until DSi. And now the biggest of them all. Full source code, design files, documentation, and pretty much everything used to create the revolution, aka Wii. The files seem to come from a server hack related to the Broadon company, who Nintendo hired for developing most of the Wii hardware and software. I'm not going to link it, but here's the contents of the massive leak. You have source code for boot 0, 1, and 2, block diagram data sheets for every system component, and Verilog data, well, Verilog code for AES and SHA. Documents from Broadon describing feature planning and implementation, plus APIs, plus docs for internal software, the full iOS software development kit, that's the, that's the operating system of the Wii itself. The source code for iOS, and it mentions here iOS is the Wii operating system, planning documentation for implementation of the system from 2004-2006, some Wii software development kit library source code, for example, DVD and XEI, or EXI, excuse me, source code and info on manufacturing and publishing systems, some miscellaneous Nintendo stuff, internal WPAD SDK from 2005, Wii overview from the Revolution SDK 1.0, SD Boot, a special manufacturing version of Boot 2, which loads data from SD card, is very buggy and likely exploitable for Boot 2 code execution on all Wiis. It is retail signed. GameCube and IQ stuff as well, Internal GameCube docs, including physical disk layout, a massive 2GB or more 
IQ dump, including full CVS for that as well. Now it's said here, the biggest and craziest thing in this link is the data sheets, block diagram, and Verilog files for every component. Verilog is a hardware description language. It is used to describe circuits via code. So with this, we can learn how every single piece of the Wii was made. Apart from this, here's everything that has leaked during the past few weeks. The debug builds of Pokemon Blue and Yellow, the source code for Pokemon Blue and Yellow, the Japanese debug builds of Pokemon Gold and Silver, the symbol map for Pokemon Crystal, the Pokemon Gold and Silver source code, Space World 1999 demos, an official Game Boy emulator, internal lists that list everything released, including unreleased ones, for all systems up to the Nintendo DS. Pokemon Generation 7 debug builds, official 3DS legality checkers, an O-Power distribution CIA, and a virtual console Mu distribution CIA. I believe that's what VC is. And finally, source code for the N64, GameCube, and Wii. Like, I'm, I'm just sitting here, just again, reading that and saying it out loud for the first time. It's just, it's holy shit, there's so much there. So... Let me go ahead and kind of talk my spiel for a little bit here. I know Modern Vintage Gamer did a phenomenal video talking about these leaks over the course of about 12 minutes, and uh, some of his, what he said I'm going to kind of echo on here, in which I know some people might be thinking, cool, if we have the source code, we can completely rebuild these systems and make clone systems. In theory, yes, you can, although I'm not sure when or if that's going to happen. Are we going to see a Wii on a chip? Are we going to see N64 on a chip? Are we going to see GameCube on a chip? Well, that would probably require something that would be more FPGA. And there's really not, at the moment at least, there's really no FPGAs that are going to be that powerful, that are going to allow this. Even so, the big thing, once this does happen, like it, once there are FPGAs that are, you know, powerful enough to, you know, completely emulate perfectly a Wii. Let's say that does happen. A lot of people who are going to put that time and effort and really develop this, unfortunately, are not going to use these sources and the source code. I guess fortunately and unfortunately, because this is all copyrighted material from Nintendo, and therefore, if people end up referencing this data and use it to build their own FPGA core, that FPGA core is then illegal and that project can be shut down and it cannot be distributed. This is also another big thing for emulation. I know a lot of people are getting excited and saying this is going to be, you know, just huge. It's going to really blow the doors open on emulation. It's going to perfect Wii emulation completely, GameCube emulation completely, uh, the N64, this is going to make it so much easier and the other problem here too more the problem for people who are working on these emulators is the way all these emulators such as Dolphin, such as project 64 just things like that the way these emulators stay in the clear is that they do clean room reverse engineering and clean room coding and they are not using source code nor are they referencing original source code they they have to do all the reverse engineering themselves not using any copyrighted stuff, and they have to write the emulators themselves, not using any of Nintendo's code, not even referencing it. So they cannot look at this. They can't. They, they simply can't. And if they do, that project, again, then comes under fire, 
and get in trouble. So let's say if the developers behind the Dolphin emulator decide to, you know what, just completely finish this off, let's make this perfect, let's go ahead and reference the GameCube and Wii documentation here and just use it to completely boost Dolphin and make it the absolute perfect amazing emulator. If it is discovered that it is using either copyrighted Nintendo code or copyrighted Nintendo code was used in the aiding of creating this emulator, then at that point, the emulator needs to get shut down from a legal perspective. And, you know, these ones that have been long lasting going on for a while, again, Project 64, Dolphin, they've been able to survive for so long because they are legally in the clear. Even stuff like PCSX2 or EPSXE, I know that's PlayStation and PlayStation 2, but the way those are able to be even commercially distributed is because they contain no Sony code. And some people say, well, you have to bring in your own bios to get it to work. That's true. And they say, you have to bring your own bios. You have to source it. We're not going to source it. We're not going to distribute it for you. We're not going to give it to you. We will give you the emulator and you need to bring over the copyrighted code. You need to bring over the copyrighted games. And that is how those emulators are still able to be around and act safely and continue development. I also did want to reference this Verge article because from what I was hearing on this, like I had seen this a few places. This is, I mean, this is older. This is just over a year old, and this article is called Security Researcher Pleads Guilty to Hacking into Microsoft and Nintendo. And let's just read this a little bit here. A 24-year-old security researcher narrowly avoided prison today after admitting to hacking into Microsoft and Nintendo servers and stealing confidential information. Zamis Clark, known online as Slipstream or Rayleigh, was charged on multiple counts of computer misuse offenses in a London Crown Court on Thursday and pleaded guilty to hacking into Microsoft and Nintendo networks. Now, he had done a lot of hacking on the Microsoft side, but I'm wanting to come to the Nintendo side here. We're going to have to go down a little further. And here we go. The Microsoft intrusion ended when Clark uploaded malware onto Microsoft's network and he was subsequently arrested in June 2017. Clark was then bailed without any restrictions on his computer use and went on to hack into Nintendo's internal network in March last year. So that's March 2018, remember that. Clark gained access through VPNs and used similar software to hack into Nintendo's highly confidential game development servers. These servers store development code for unreleased games, and Clark was able to steal 2,365 usernames and passwords until Nintendo eventually discovered the breach in May 2018. Now, the reason why I'm referencing this article here is because several people have said that this is related to the current leaks we're seeing. You see, this is this is allegedly here, right? Completely allegedly. But allegedly, from what I had seen on a few places, the gentleman here who had conducted this hack had all of this data on Nintendo. And he had given this data to his friends. And his friends have been holding on to it. And it's just now starting to leak out. Apparently, as reported, there's over 2 terabytes of data. And we haven't gotten close to 2 terabytes, not by a long shot. So there's apparently a lot more behind closed doors, sitting on hard drives, solid state drives, all that, that might or might not leak. But there's a lot more data that was stolen from this that has been circulated around. So if we see more leaks here in the future, do not be surprised, alright? Do not be surprised. This is stuff, apparently if this is true, this is stuff that was stolen about two years ago and is now finally starting to trickle its way out onto the internet. And why do I think it's happening right now, of all times? 
boredom, quarantine, coronavirus. You got a lot of people sitting at home, not doing too much, just playing around. That's why you see scamming going up further. That's why you're seeing all this other stuff. And that's why I'm sure you're seeing a lot of these leaks because people are wanting all this stuff out there and people are just wanting to have a little bit of fun at the moment. <laughs> now, speaking of coronavirus stuff here, I did want to bring this up. This is something that I've been trying to bring up every episode and I think I'm going to continue to do so as this is going on. But this is in regards to coronavirus, COVID-19, and folding at home. Now, as I always say in these episodes, in short, in case you don't know what folding at home is, Folding at Home is an application that you can set up on a computer, on a server, on something that has a digital pulse, so to speak, and once you get connected and all set up, you then end up using your computer's CPU power, so it's kind of like mining, for example, as opposed to like Bitcoin mining or doing anything else, you are mining and you are donating, so to speak, your CPU power. Now, this is towards the Folding at Home project, and Folding at Home essentially what they do is they will turn your computer into a very small fraction of a giant network of other computers that are folding at home that then make up a supercomputer. Now, in a perfect world to do the research that we would need to and fight coronavirus properly, the appropriate places that would need a supercomputer would have it and they would be doing all these calculations and such. However, this is not a perfect world. Of course, we have this going on here. Supercomputers, they take up a lot of room, they take a lot of time, they take a lot of resources, money, and all that stuff to upkeep. So, what Folding at Home can do is it's not even just coronavirus, but it can fight, you know, many other medical issues as well too and help to really make the world a better place. The reason why I've been mentioning this the past few months is because we are all in this together. We are all affected whether you want to admit it or not either majorly or minimally and if I can even convince just a small handful of people to start folding at home on their work PCs or spare workstation or spare server that will make me happy. So check out this link down below in the description for folding at home to learn more about this and what you can do to help fight COVID-19. I'm not at all officially affiliated with them in any ways. I just like this cause and I would like to use my reach here on the internet to get this out. Now, I know that we just got done talking about leaks on the Nintendo side. We are not done talking about leaks, man. Oh my god, I had... You know what? At one point last year, I had a pretty bad basement leak, and this is <laughs> this is like a waterfall. It's in Nintendo's basement right now. Not even Nintendo, excuse me. This is like a wa this episode and and this month of leaking stuff has just been like a giant waterfall sitting in the collective basement of the gaming industry that all of a sudden just appeared there and is just gushing out everything. That's how I'm explaining it. This is a waterfall episode, all right. But anyways, I wanted to refer to this Twitter thread here created by user PixelButts. Uh, he's been a friend of the show here, and I've known him at least online for the last few years, but he had a really good thread talking about this, and I wanted to cite this because he's been in these scenes before. He knows what he's talking about. He's had people talk with him about this, and this in regards to The Last of Us 2 leak and how it happened. Now, just as a heads up, there's not going to be any spoilers about The Last of Us 2 in this video, all right, or in this podcast. You don't have to worry about that. I don't even really care about The Last of Us all that much. So if I get it spoiled, eh, it's like I've had it spoiled. I've watched some videos talking about, you know, the faults of the plot and such on here, and those have been interesting. 
But I digress, I digress. I'm going to go through this series of tweets, it is a bit long, and I'm going to, you know, just say this out loud. So as Pixelbutt says here, for those of you interested in The Last of Us 2 leaks and how it happened, here's your rundown. I have no idea how many tweets this will be, so buckle up. Every Naughty Dog game has a final patch that is pushed to the game that contains an Amazon AWS key that, when paired with a secret bucket ID, will give full access to the server's contents. There's a different key and bucket ID per game. This is important. This vulnerability was discovered recently, and some hackers took full advantage of it, saving The Last of Us 1, Uncharted 3, and other dev stuff. At the time, it was disclosed to me around early February, and was very early on around January 2020 when it was discovered. Come March, keys and data were saved, Somewhere around 1 to 3 terabytes, though I can only say 1 terabyte for sure. They were trying to dump The Last of Us 1 in an effort to get that game's key as Uncharted 3 had The Last of Us 1 material. So surely The Last of Us 1 had The Last of Us 2? No idea, in the end, but come April things got spicy. In April, all the leaks of story were validated by the footage posted. I cannot speak for the text posts with story. But I can say that the dates from discovery and disclosure match with timestamps in the footage as well. You can check yourself bottom left of all footage. Come May 30th, I think he meant March, but come March 30th, late at night, the source that disclosed this to me stated that the key had changed, so Naughty Dog for sure knew how to resolve this issue, and no keys work with the bucket IDs now. This is good, but there's more. The person that spoke to me is a direct source of this compromise, but is not, as far as I am aware or can tell, not the one that leaked this material. I say this because even though they were weirdly skeptical about the Naughty Dog employee leaked things because they were mad. I've been watching this for about three months now, and after speaking to a first-hand source of this, my only conclusion is they, and their immediate circle, did not leak it but shared information relating to what I described, and another party proceeded to leak such material. This is not the first time this has happened in circles like this, either to boot. I trust their word as a first-hand source of this happening, and I trust that they're not dumb enough to leak it, but whether they leaked everything to get such is another story. In regards to the dev kit nonsense, yes, you would need a dev kit to do this, and given that it's relatively easy to get one, yes, really, it is. This is not very much of a problem. I can say the circle for the vulnerability owns such hardware as well. I've seen the photos. What's the point I'm making? The point. There's plenty of room to argue a Naughty Dog employee is involved. But from the evidence, which I have submitted to Naughty Dog back in February, stands to point to a Naughty Dog made security vulnerability that was exploited, not an angry employee. While I will not give names, I will say this. I've been around, I know leaks, I listen, I watch, I keep tabs on things. I've known about this for months and kept quiet publicly, but since it's blocked out now and news coverage confirmed what I've known, I decided to say so publicly. I have no affiliation with the group and I have no materials from the leak, and I'm not going to. I've had my ass bitten once before and I don't need a second round of it, but putting the truth out there is important, because even then, you'll still have people saying it was a Naughty Dog employee. Don't believe what sounds like the juiciest story, even if it's what you want to hear. Sometimes, it's really that boring. Hackerman exploiting a vulnerability created by the company's own games to gain internal access. Hopefully this has been enlightening for you. 
One final note. The person that spoke to me asked about my previous legal run-in. That's primarily what led to this disclosure to begin with. I do not advocate or suggest stealing and leaking. Preservation is important, but don't do it through stealing. And now the last thing here a day later, tacking this onto the bottom since people insist that it was a Naughty Dog employee when no, it wasn't. Why you think it's a Naughty Dog employee that leaked this is still baffling to me. And he ended up linking a tweet here in which, let's see, so it says from Games Industry Update, Sony has identified the individuals responsible for The Last of Us Part 2 leaks, saying they are not affiliated with either Sony or Naughty Dog. And up here in the quote retweet, it says, like in case you were unaware, cybercrime divisions almost always find out who's responsible for leaked company information, no matter the line of work or type of industry you are in. It's their full-time job and they will find you eventually. So, wow, that was a lot to go through on here and I do want to thank Pixelbutts for sharing all of this here. Now, I would suggest giving him a follow on Twitter if you're interested in some more other game preservation hacky type stuff like this and just, you know, some stuff that might be interesting on here. But yeah, that's about the input that I had really had on this in regards to The Last of Us 2 leaks. I know some people were angry about them, some people were excited about them, a lot of people were believing that it was a Naughty Dog employee or two that leaked them, and then people refused to believe that they were not Naughty Dog employees, but no, that's about what it was. It looks like some rogue hackers who also had dev kit hardware found a vulnerability and were able to pull The Last of Us 2 data down, play it, record it, note down everything, and leak it out. <sighs> Alright, that was a lot to talk about. So let's also talk about more leaks. How about that? So, this is from My Nintendo News, and this is called A Pitch of Diddy Kong Racing Adventure by Climax Studios uploaded online for Xbox. Now, this is not the full game, mind you. This is not, but let's just read this here. An auction which was held when Climax Studios was liquidated reveals that they put together a demo for Diddy Kong Racing Adventure on Microsoft's Xbox. The blurb on the 2016 YouTube video, and this is by Borman or P2P Online, awesome guy, friend of the show, he did a great little video on this, but the blurb on the 2016 YouTube video reveals that Climax Studios believed nothing was off limits, despite Diddy Kong etc. clearly being the property of Nintendo. The actual ROM itself is out there now for Diddy Kong Racing, though we won't be providing a link, you can view the 2016 video of the action down below. And yeah, here I guess some tweets were cited in which this user Push Dustin had said it's a massive data leak and unprecedented in video game history. Nintendo will definitely take legal action against the leak, it, this seems like the thing we were talking two topics about ago. And here it says, unrelated to this leak. It seems a pitch of Diddy Kong Racing by Climax Studios was also uploaded online. This pitch was made for the Xbox and isn't Donkey Kong Racing made by Rare on the GameCube. Alright, so I think we are completely done with the leak stuff and unfortunately I got some bad news here and it's in regards to the Switch. So Aesthetics, a fellow YouTuber on this platform here on Twitter, had said, YouTube is deleting some of my Atlas NX videos and gave me a strike for it. So I had to hide and remove some of the hacking videos, especially on how to get custom firmware on Switch. He had said here, I think in the meantime, I won't post any Switch hacking videos on YouTube. Let's look for other alternatives. And this seems to be a ban wave, or not a ban wave, that's, that's a little too strong. This seems to be a wave of, a takedown wave, that's how I should call it. 
because it looks like Modsville USA had said, yeah, man, they went scorched earth on my channel too. Immunan setup, trinket install, trinket showcase, etc. And even aesthetics here said, it's like a bandwave for us YouTubers. Better delete or hide switch modding videos. Now, it looks like Modsville had stated, on a serious note, I've successfully appealed four of my six videos so far. I'm going to keep my switch content private for now, though, until things settle down. So many hours I've put into making that content feels bad, man. And I did see this even a week or two ago. I know Modded Warfare, for example, also on Twitter had said that he had a SX Pro or a SX install video that he privated over a year ago that all of a sudden got a strike, a community guideline strike. So when I saw that, I was like, there's going to be some waves coming here. And of course, now we're seeing it, unfortunately. But looking at Modsville's videos here, just looking, it's the ones that were taken down were how to go online with PK Hex, the final build, how it functions, ultimate switch trinket, ultimate switch trinket M0 install guide, how to edit any raid den seed or mon and PK Hex, Immunand setup, Immunand setup again. So it looks like they're really just trying to take stuff down. And it's not even Nintendo who's explicitly doing this. It's YouTube that's doing it here because these are community guideline strikes. Just looking through Aesthetics Twitter as well too. Let's see, I kind of have to work a little bit backwards here, but he was saying, I think from now on, I will put Switch hacking videos on to other platforms like BitShooter Daily Motion, but I will keep Switch repair videos on YouTube. He also said, how about creating Switch modding hacking videos without showing the console and Nintendo logo itself? I'm thinking about creating a slideshow or something like that. Maybe that might work. He made a BitShoot channel. He also has a website there. And he did also say, the good thing is, my YouTube account strike is now gone. They have removed the strike, and I have removed some videos from my channel. So yes, apparently, again, these were struck down by YouTube. These were community guideline strikes, and it looks like looking at Modsville and looking at Aesthetics, they were able to surprisingly appeal them and really quickly get them reinstated. But just be careful if you are making Switch modding-related content on here. It looks like there is another wave happening at the moment. All right, in something I never thought I would talk about on here, let's talk 3DO, specifically on Instagram from the account Panasonic3DO. I've talked with this guy here privately a few times. He's a real cool dude. He just he got into the 3DO a few years ago. He started collecting and archiving a ton of stuff, and this is really cool. So he had said here, I'm just going to read this. He said, uh, edit, this may not be for sale by a single individual, but are currently intended for individuals to do themselves for the time being. Batch production and selling has not yet come into discussion. Hey everyone, I know I've been keeping a lot of what's going on in the homebrew scene quiet, because most things are a work in progress. But the creator of this gave me the green light to show it off. First, a little background on the creator. He, Fixel, was a part of the original 3DO emulator project titled Frido. He also reverse-engineered the 3DO hardware with the project team, and the Frido code eventually branched into 4DO and Phoenix. Needless to say, he knows his stuff. Anyway, this is a new open-source ODE that will be launching sometime in the near future. It will feature a microSD card slot and a USB. This is the FZ1 design and the Sanyo Gold Star will get one soon. This will be open source hardware and software. 
This will open a world of possibilities for people willing. This ODE will also work on the American Laser Games systems, as the current ones on the market do not. This means preservation for American Laser Games systems to keep them playable for years to come. The pricing on this card is not determined yet, but it may be cheaper for the FZ1 than what is currently on the market after cost optimizations, as Fixel has stated that the main goal is to make it open source. And here we got a few photos, so this is called the FZ1 ODE, and just looking at this here, I mean, these renders look nice so far, we just have three images here, but yeah, we are seeing more optical drive emulator progress for the Panasonic 3DO of all systems. Screw it, it makes me happy. I actually need to pick up a 3DO at one point. That's one of those systems I don't have. I think it's, I don't know, the, the next few systems I want are not the next-gen systems. I'm actually wanting to build my own Mr. I want a 3DO, and I'd like a Neo Geo CD. So those are like the three consoles I'm really looking forward to getting at one point here, hopefully in the near future. But either way, that's besides the point. This is looking cool. I like seeing more development on stuff like this, and ODEs make me happy. Now for our last topic here, you know what, I'm going to choose this to be the kind of random funny thing that I try to throw in on here, because at this point, damn it, Super Mario 64 is turning into Doom. And by that I mean, this is from the OneAngryGamer.net article, but Super Mario 64 unofficial PC port available for download. Now it's said here, a DX12 4K ready PC port of the Super Mario 64 is currently available for download. It's not a fan-made project, but it is a fan-ported project. In other words, this is the real deal made available to play on PC via a native executable. This is not emulation, this is not a drill. Download links are already being nuked from the interwebs, likely from host providers unwilling to deal with Nintendo's lawyers. Or Nintendo's lawyers sniffing out the URLs like addicts sniffing out milligrams of danger sugar light around a crack house. According to Hardform, the project is complete. This isn't just a single level or a dest demo. This is the full Super Mario 64 from the N64 made available on PC. Estrasevo, a developer who commented about the leaks on YouTube, did a breakdown of what exactly happened, writing, For everyone wondering how and why this happened, in 2019, Mario 64 was completely decompiled. Normally, in decompilation, the resulting source code has generic, variable, and structure names. So it was cleaned up so that everything could be easily mapped out, and now we have a one-to-one -one recreation of the original source code that builds the ROM just fine. You can find the repo on GitHub. Using this, another team took the decompiled source code and ported it to Windows. This was basically a matter of replacing LibUltra, the library that many N64 games use, with DirectX. When the N64 leaks started a couple days ago, the Windows port wasn't officially out yet, but it happens to leak either way right around the same time as the rest of the N64 leaks, the internal SDKs, documentation, Verilog files, prototypes, demos, etc. There's still separate leaks, though. And now, I mean, this is how angry Nintendo is. You can get a glimpse of the game in action via the Unreal YouTube channel, and if we click, the video is no longer available due to a copyright claim by a third party. But I have seen it, and oh my goodness, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. It is just... Man, Mario 64 on PC natively is crazy. Now, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because at this point, 
it's kind of being ported to everything. I mean, I've seen this ported to Linux, I've seen this ported to Switch. Now there was this here, which I thought was real, and Pixel also thought this was real, and it wasn't. He did say, real talk, let's give a round of applause to the dude porting Super Mario 64 to the PS2 of all things. That SM64 decompilation is rad as hell, and unfortunately, no, it's... This is not real. This PS2 port is not real. Sadly. I thought it was. But you know what is real? It, it's it's on WebGL. I loaded this up on my browser, and this is Super Mario 64 on my browser right here. <laughs> oh my god. So now we have it on this the, we we have it on PC, Linux, Switch, and browser, WebGL. And we're just going to have it on more and more and more stuff, aren't we? It's going to be on everything at this point, and that makes me so happy. Anyways, phew, that is about it for this episode. This is a whole lot of stuff to go into for episode 60. I hope you enjoyed it. This is a real fun one to go over here. And let me know what your favorite topic was out of everything that was covered here. You know what? If you made it to the very end of this episode of Mod Chat, I like to use a keyword or a key phrase that you can use in a YouTube comment on the YouTube upload of this. So I I would know that you made it to the end. Now let's see, if you made it to the very end of this episode, comment with the word waterfall. If you use the word waterfall on your YouTube comment, I will know you made it to the very end of Mod Chat episode 60. Anyways, this is Mr. Mario signing off. Thank you all for watching and listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, a like would absolutely be appreciated. If you didn't like it, a dislike is fine as well, too. But either way, I guess until next time.